LP, Petaluma, California. There was a new radio station in town. Oh, oh, you mean Free Range Radio KPCA at 103.3 FM? Yeah, that's right. How did you know about that? Well, I just looked where all good information comes from, Facebook. Just follow the Free Range Radio KPCA page and join the discussion. Just... Good morning, Petaluma. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted. This is Rabbi Ted Feldman of the Nezo Jewish Center here in Petaluma and chair of the Petaluma Committee Relations Council. You're listening to KPCA LP Petaluma. And each, uh, uh, twice a month actually, we get together to meet people from our community who have some effect on our lives and learn about uh, their passions and how they got connected to what they do and uh, move on to other conversation bits. This morning we're honored to have in our studio uh, Dave King, a member of Petaluma City Council and uh, an attorney in our community's midst. So welcome to the studio. Good morning, Rabbi. Good morning, good morning. Happy Thursday to you. You too. Yeah, it's good to have you here. Wow, what's it like being on City Council? It's pretty busy. Yeah. Um, I enjoy it. Uh-huh. It's, it's good work, and uh, we, we have uh, an endless range of issues. Um, you know, we have to cover everything from infrastructure to civil rights and uh, everything in between. And, um, you know, it's a lot of work, and, uh, but I'm enjoying it very much. It's That's my fifth, fifth well, year. Between now and 1027, we're going to solve each of the issues in order, okay? But first, I want to know a little bit about your sure. background. <laughs> How long have you been here? What uh, family-wise in the community? What have you? What's this been like for you over this journey? Well, uh, my wife and I moved here in 1991. Um, at the time, we had a one-year-old daughter. Um, we had a second daughter uh, in 1997. Uh-huh. Um, we live over on Sixth Street. We haven't moved since the house we we lived into initially. Uh, I'm born and raised in New York, Port Washington, New York. Uh, I came to California to go to law school in 1981, lived in San Francisco for a decade, and then came up here uh, in part because we could afford a house, uh, barely, um, and in part because my wife wanted to uh, grow up in a city that was similar to the hometown that she had grown up in, um, and Petaluma was the place. So. We've been here all that time. My law practice is in downtown. I do employment law. That's actually about a three-minute walk from your studio. And um, I used to be, actually, for a year and a half, I had my office was in this building as well, 205 Keller. So I've been practicing law for almost 35 years and you know, probably 30 of it up here. Uh, Port Washington. I was in Glen Cove for a while. Oh, yeah. So, uh, right. you know, oh, ne- hi, hello. The next peninsula. <laughs> the next peninsula over. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, so how did you get the notion that you wanted to go into public service in terms of running for office? And what, 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 what happened inside that made that happen? Well, I've been interested in politics since I was a kid. Um, I remember coloring in the states that Lyndon Johnson won in the 1964 presidential election. Um, you know, I, I remember President Kennedy um, and uh, you know, how important it was to, to people who were like me, who grew up Catholic and 
went to Catholic school and um, the fact that he was the first Catholic. And maybe all of that influenced me, but also, um, you know, my, my father was particularly interested in politics. He was generally talking about what was going on in the world, in the, in the country, and so forth, and it's always been a part of my life. As far as Petaluma goes, um, I probably turned down more chances to, to at least consider running for, for a long time uh, until 2014. Uh, it's a long story, and I won't get into it. I've told it a million times, but a friend of mine kind of talked me into it. Um, she's someone you know, Elise Hempel, mm-hmm. from Petaluma People Services. And um, so I, uh, I thought about it, talked it over with my wife, who you know, had to give the okay because it's pretty demanding, and decided to run. And so uh, I ran. But I had also been paying attention to local issues. I had been on the Chamber of uh, Commerce Board for about seven or eight years and had uh, chaired its government affairs committee, and that was where I was active. And um, so I, I kind of had an idea you know, what was going on in the city and had opinions on things and would talk to the council members about it from time to time. So I had an interest in that and um, went from there. Uh, it could be because, in essence, putting yourself into a uh, public position like that, you become vulnerable in many ways to criticisms, to disagreements. Uh, once you take a stand on something, there's obviously going to be somebody against it, at least one person uh, against that particular position. So that does require a certain processing inside uh, to be able to invite that into your life. Uh, that's that's absolutely right. You, you are going to be criticized. You are going to be and criticized is probably the kindest word you could <laughs> put to it. Um, yeah. uh, yeah. But, you know, people call it a thankless job, and I don't necessarily agree with that. I think people um, around Petaluma at least thank us regularly, individually or as a group, uh, for things we do. Um, and so I try to focus on the positive end of things, you know, what we're able to accomplish and not spend a lot of time thinking about the criticism. Um it is hard when you have to make a decision that someone you know and respect is on the other side and it's important to them and you're not going with them. I think that may be the hardest thing to do uh, in a local office because you, you're connected. People show up and they communicate with you and they get a response typically. And um, it's not like, um, in many respects, being a member of the House of Representatives or, or you know, where you have a large district and... and you know, they're responsive to, to some degree, but not like on a city council. And you have to, you know, you know, they have a chance to talk to you and say, why did you do that? What, what were you thinking? And you have to tell them what you were thinking and why you did it. And it's, that's, that's difficult sometimes. That's tougher than the criticism from a stranger. Well, and I understand that. And I, I recognize, you know, many times I around the downtown area and I see various members of city council or the mayor walking around just being a citizen of the city and going about daily business. And I'm sure uh, there's a certain intimacy in a smaller town that really uh, has its very positive part, but also has its very conflicting and difficult parts. Yeah, so, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I, I do uh, appreciate the work that people have put into making this city what it is through the city council and the government system. Um, so recently, uh, city council met a couple of lost track of time, but they set up a, a bunch of goals for the coming years. And 
What what were some of the main some main goals that City Council has adopted for for the path ahead? Well, the process is that every two years we set our goals, uh, and we have we have a very new process this time in terms of how how it was approached and. Um, it was a broader outreach to the public and to get public input. Um, but for me and for other council members, uh, I submitted a list, probably you know, four or five page list of bullet pointed items that I would hope we would put on our goals and objectives, and they, they all, you know, they all got in there. So what what it does is it gives the staff a roadmap, the city manager um, and our staff a roadmap on what we uh, want to have before us. Um, as we go forward in the next year or two. Um, so in terms of the specific goals, we had things like uh, how to deal with affordable housing and what options do we have. Uh, a group of, from the public came forward and, and suggested we have what they call a, a climate cabinet. So we've created or in the process of creating a climate commission. In fact, appointments will be made in September, I believe. Um, applications are coming in. I don't know if they're cutoff is applied, but uh, we, we are dealing with, to the degree we can, locally, climate issues, housing, infrastructure, parks, the things that people uh, have a real interest in. Um, and for us, it's trying to figure out how to also re maintain, retain a strong police and fire department, because that's a, that's a, a big thing that people rely on. Um, uh, we may not realize it on the day-to-day, -day, but anecdotally, there was a fire in my neighborhood yesterday, not too far from where I live. And, you know, thankfully, we had a police and fire department that was able to respond and keep it from spreading. It was bad for the people there, unfortunately. But So these are the important things we set up as we go forward. And the, the work that gets done, the day-to-day -day work, is done by the city staff, uh, the city manager, department head, city attorney, and they need some guidance. They, they need some direction as to uh, what the council wants to do, and that's, that, that was the process. Yeah, and I, um, the Petaluma Community Relations Council is actually going to do a series of programs this coming year around the issue of sustainability and affordability in Petaluma. Our first one's going to be at the end of October. I'll get you the information about that when the details are final and hope that members of city council will be able to participate with us and broaden the discussion around some of these uh, key areas uh, that we're confronting here because affordability is really a challenging issue up here constantly. Uh, and it's just the, the gasoline prices are just one right. small piece, but it's obvious and you drive to another town and it's so much less. So there's, there's something going on in Petaluma that... Uh, that has attacked our affordability and right. being able to attract uh, police officers, firefighters to, who live in the community. I remember there was an article uh, in the Argus a number of months ago about the firefighters who live in Central Valley and up uh, up north and they fly in on an airplane or they drive in for their four-day stint and it was just amazing to think how far people were coming for jobs and because it's cheaper for them to live where they are than to live in the Bay Area and, and try to be near where they're working. Yeah, housing affordability in the Bay Area as a whole, and Petaluma is part of that Bay Area, uh, is a real problem when you have an extraordinarily popular place to live, uh, one that booms economically, has jobs, is beautiful beyond 
you know, words in many ways, particularly Sonoma County, people want to be there. And it's difficult. You're not going to stop the people from coming. Other parts of the country and the world have the same dilemmas. It's expensive in New York. It's expensive in Los Angeles. London is expensive in other places. We have some tools at the city council, our affordable housing programs, um, and, and we need help from the state, quite frankly, real help, not, you know, um, top-down uh, set of regulations, but money so that we can leverage money to, to build some more affordable housing uh, and, and workforce housing that can help the people here uh, you know, get into something that is more manageable. It's a small part of our housing nut. And the other thing we have to try to figure out, and this is a little more daunting, is what do you do with market housing? Existing market housing is already out there, but new market housing, and how do we get builders to build the houses that um, are a little more affordable at the front end? Um, and how do you do that in, in, a, in a marketplace that doesn't necessarily uh, honor that particular goal uh, from an economic point of view? And it, it's, um, in some ways, the building more housing also creates other challenges for the city because there's more traffic, <laughs> infrastructure issues that are, that are made more difficult or more challenging because the, more, the housing is there. So they, they're, somehow it's all intricately tied together. And it is and sometimes must be a daunting task for city council to look at the breadth of all of these things and to to try to struggle with them and find the right balance of how to make this and maintain the quality of life that we want here in Petaluma. Which is why we're probably not going to solve this in 27 minutes. Uh, as oh, you said, man. I'm very oh, I'm no. sorry to disappoint you. I oh, hate, no. hate to d disappoint um, <laughs> a man of religion. <laughs> I've already done it enough in my life, so I, uh, I, I don't I got, need an extra. I got the report on that. Don't worry. I'm <laughs> you know, my report card, my permanent record. <laughs> That's permanent a, that you need more than 27 <laughs> minutes for that. Um, yeah. But it is. It, it's. It, yeah. It's. You're right. The more the more people that we have. Um, and, and people are coming here. You know, pe there are people here who say, you know, um, I want the town to be like it was when I moved here, but, but things change. You know, you, you're not using the same phone you were using in 1990. Um, you know, things change. You used to go make a phone call at a payphone. You know, try to, pay yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Every uh, time I see one, occasionally it's like, oh, belongs to the museum. <laughs> at this museum. point, yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right, and it's it's a daunting. Uh, there's a daunting piece to it. And, I mean, it, it even goes into public safety issues because mm -hmm. you need a stronger fire department because you have a bigger area to serve and more buildings to serve. You need more police. I mean, it's just, it just goes hand in hand. And I know when Chief Savano was on the program, he was lamenting the shortage of officers since the recession and attempting to recover uh, to get up to a national standard. And they're still gradually a little bit at a time working toward that. Right, and Chief is Chief Silvano is absolutely right. We are short. Uh, it's not one or two, it's, it's oh, we're approaching a dozen or more. Yeah, yeah. And it's real it has real consequences. Uh, these officers have to work more overtime, which means they're operating tired. Um, they do a great job. They're really it's amazing how good a job the Petaluma police does. And fire, I will add as well. 
um, with the shortages that they have. And it's a real dilemma. You touched upon people that we have to keep and retain, but they don't live in the, in the area, and that makes it harder. Um, there are other things that, that make it harder. Uh, there are bigger police departments, for example, have more interesting and, and uh, opportunities for, for young officers to move up and, and move into different areas, specialties, and so forth. And we, we don't have that, and we won't have that. So we have to figure out a way to, to retain that. And, and you know, the, the truth is that means money. Right. Um, it's not a complex thing. Um, Petaluma's general fund is, is recovering, uh, but we had a lengthy, I would call it a depression from probably 07 to maybe 2011, began to get out of it in 2011, 2012 nationally, and it's, a, it's been a slow comeback. Uh, for general fund money and and other other sources, um, so uh, that's a big part of it. I noticed uh, when the, the police department had made an announcement about a new officer coming in, and they they used the term lateral officer. I, you know, so it was on Facebook. So I said, "What is a lateral officer?" It sounds like a football uh, maneuver. Yeah. Uh, and so they did point out that this is officers who come already sworn in other uh, jurisdictions who come to a new jurisdiction. So that's a lateral they're coming right. across. So they learned a new term in the process there about that. But uh, yeah, I know, I know of uh, of those challenges. What's what's going on? What's the status of the gas station? Uh, controversy at this stage with Safeway? Uh, my understanding is it's in the legal process. Um, the last I heard, and it's really, I don't know how many, you know, levers of hearsay removed, but there was a motion filed by Safeway to, um, it's an anti, what they call an anti-slap motion, and I don't know that that's been heard. Um, so it's, it's in the legal process. Um, Safeway, I think, is attempting to move some of their applications forward, and um, you know, I think what we at the city are going to see is the result of what the what the legal process brings out. Um, and I don't, I have to confess, it's not something I follow closely. And um, you know, if it comes back to us in any way, we'll deal with it then. Right. So, in, uh, in the past. While you know we've been dealing with uh, issues of increased hate in our country, and um, we've had some incidents locally of uh, of harassment and concerns, uh, the Kenilworth uh, piece that came out of in the school and uh, the Progressive Fair, there was a little bit of uh, taunting of the Progressive tabling there, and uh, from people who support uh, the government, uh, the president, and uh, trying to interfere in some ways with what was going on in uh, Southern California. We had some high schools where the water polo team, they were doing uh, uh, Nazi salutes. And um, what, what's, what's, what do you make of all this, and how do you think our city is faring, and do we need to be doing anything more about it? Um, what's the it? Can, uh, we can maybe solve this one. I don't know, but I don't think so. <laughs> it's the it is in the White House. Yeah, there's no doubt that um, 
Donald Trump foments hate in this country and lives on it. It's just, it's just breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And what we have to do about it is get him out of the White House. Mm. Um, whether we do it by election or impeachment uh, and removal, um, he's the worst of America. Um, we could not have elected a more despicable human being without a single redeeming quality. And he's the large part of the problem. Underlying that, apparently, has been um, people that come out of the woodwork and believe that it's okay to yell at people, for example, at the community center. I know that there's an incident out there where people were um, intimidated, threatened for exercising their First Amendment free speech rights. And that's completely wrong. And when you have leadership at the White House that allow, you know, basically goes out and tries to talk people into doing that, uh, we, we have a real problem. Um, and that's just the beginning of what we have a problem with in the White House. Um, we have horrific economic policy, horrific environmental policy. We have horrific governance. You can't even fill or maintain people in positions. And we have someone who has, um, in my view, uh, ignored all of our international uh, relationships. Um, not ignored, damaged them um, through ignorance, largely. Um, you can't be, I know he doesn't drink, but you can't be the guy at the end of the bar shouting off your opinions after seven beers when your brain isn't working, and that's what the guy does. And I think. You know, we get rid of him, we get rid of, when I say get rid of him, I mean in an electoral way, get rid of him as, as our president and get a sane, non-madman in the White House, and things will calm down. I can tell you, I, locally, what we can do about it is speak out. I, you know, I don't have, I don't, I'm not on Twitter, I'm barely on Facebook. I'm not someone who needs to, to, to daily condemn everything that's done. I did have somebody ask me to do this, and I guess this is my first real opportunity. So I will say the people that showed up to intimidate folks at, at, uh, at the community center and any, anywhere else uh, in support of white supremacy or um, in, in, uh, in, in immigrant bashing or anything else do not represent the true Petaluma. And they, they, they should not be permitted to, to do that. It's one thing if you're speaking your own First Amendment rights. It's another thing if you're preventing somebody from speaking theirs. Yeah, I know that the Petaluma City School Board just passed a resolution for the schools to become a uh, affirming that the schools should be a safe place uh, for the immigrants, a safe place where people can exercise their, uh, their right to share their beliefs, etc., but would not tolerate uh, the presence of hate and white supremacy, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, where it calls for harming other populations. And I, I think that was a great move uh, by that by our city school board. Uh, yeah, that's that, that's important because these are young people. And another aspect of this is education and communication. Mm -hmm. why, you know, why are people believing in these things? Why are why are why is a nation of immigrants so anti-immigrant? 
And, and the problem we have, again, in D.C. is we don't have a valid, uh, strong immigration policy that sets up a, a methodology for people that have been in this country for a while to become citizens. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we do need to talk. I mean, even people that, that – I'm not talking about, you know, calm disagreement. I'm talking about people that are on extremes on an issue. You do need to talk. And at the worst that's going to happen is if you if you do listen a little bit, you might learn something. Um, but but there's an education process on this, and I, I, I you know it's hard for me to comprehend why anybody thinks that one race is supreme over another. It's it hasn't been borne out in any objective <laughs> fashion throughout the history of the human race, and and um, but you know. I guess that's what I'd say about that. Yeah, well, it's it's and it's true. And our our country is supposed to be standing for ideals much higher than we're experiencing at this point. Um, yeah, we seek a more perfect union, and that's what we should be doing as a country. It's we're never going to be perfect, but we have to work to get there. Right. And part of that is dialogue instead of monologue. And part of it is um, is. Also, the key to it, as you alluded to, is listening. Is in that dialogue, uh, we're not anticipating our next statement back, but we're actually taking in what the other person is saying to us and trying to make sure that we comprehend it completely. Right, and that's a good definition of listening. Right, you can learn things in life from no matter how long you've been around. Right, you can learn things in life. I know our city council works very hard, and that uh, you have been, uh, it's been what, five years now that you've been on the council? This is my fifth, yeah. This is your fifth year, and it sounds like this is a, play, a niche in your life that you have enjoyed and appreciate the talents you're for yourself that you are able to bring to it. Yeah, and I would say before this ends, and the talents that the other people on the council bring too. You know, one of the most important things to realize when you're up there is the other people were elected too, and they bring a lot to the table, and they're good people. And mm-hmm. it's it's important to remember that almost every time a decision is made by us. And even when you're disagreeing with each other, which is, that's the real trick in this process, is that part. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dave King, for being part of our program today and coming here for this very quick discussion as it went by quickly. And we thank you. And uh, during our second segment, we'll be meeting uh, Reverend Jason Hubbard from uh, United Church of Christ, Petaluma. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCALP Petaluma. We'll be back in three minutes.
Good morning again, Petaluma. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCA LP, Petaluma, California. Back for our second segment here in the studio today. And our guest is Reverend Jason Hubbard from the United Church of Christ, Petaluma. A fairly newly arrived. A family arrived about two months ago. And you started when? Well, I started my journey flying back and forth between here and Michigan back in March. Okay, okay. Yeah. So you know the whole layout of the place. Oh, I've got it all figured out. So you anything you need to know, out. you just ask me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I, I have to acknowledge that uh, over my 14 years in Petaluma, I've had a uh, kind of special relationship with United Church of Christ, uh, previous pastors, and done some seders there, spoken at services there, and uh, Jason and I are blossoming our friendship and connection um, over the months that he's been here and appreciate working with him. I had an opportunity to speak at the church uh, back in June. And uh, so here he is with us today and going to provide us all kinds of answers. So give us a little bit of your, your background and, um, yeah. Tell us about yourself. I don't know about answers, but maybe I'll have a couple of good questions. Okay, that's the important part. Since I'm talking to a rabbi. That's the important (laughs) part. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, I am a a lifer in the UCC, which is how many people refer to United Church of Christ in Petaluma as UCC Petaluma. Uh Um, You know, that language is not as common to the culture anymore. You know, church is not the thing that everybody does. Um, And so that's part of my life. Having grown up in the church, my mother was my choir director. So as a kid uh, growing up on the peninsula, Uh in a little town that even most people around here don't seem to know called Ladera, which is right off 280 at Alpine Road before you get to Portola Valley Woodside. Wow. There's this little tiny place that in the early 60s, my dad was moved by IBM Hmm. here. And uh, apparently a bunch of Stanford professors made a little commune there. And it failed, and they ended up selling off the houses. And so this little teeny tiny town raised me, and the Stanford professors built a little UCC church at the bottom of the hill. And it was a place of uh, very much reflected a bunch of professors getting together to make something called church. Wow, okay, that would be interesting. <laughs> it was a fascinating place, very open to ideas about how we might be faithful people in the broadest kind of terms, Mm -hmm. such that I was not raised with really a Bible in my hand, though they were available. The project was much more about human community. And I didn't think that was at all unusual until after going to school in UCSB and graduating from Woodside High School, I chased a girl to Chicago and eventually to the west coast of Michigan, where I've spent the last 30 years. Oh, my goodness. I landed in a little town called Grand Rapids, which is actually the second largest city in the state. So hardly a little town. It's about the size of Santa Rosa. Uh And uh, I was quickly introduced to the idea that uh, Grand Rapids was known as the Protestant Vatican. It is the world headquarters of Dutch Reformed Christianity. So there's literally a church on every corner in the city. You will not escape it uh, for all the good it can do and for all the real suffering it can create. As it's been clear in the church's long history, as we can create as much pain as good. And and I was not at all involved in church at that point. I'm a second career minister. Mm -hmm. Um, I grew up uh, a musician, theater kid. 
um, and uh, was just talking about my relationship uh, to Fantasy Recording Studios and the Music Annex and some wonderful places in the uh-huh. Bay Area that made a lot of great music. Then became a home builder in Chicago and really loved that work. And then when I moved to Grand Rapids, there wasn't a single job available for me. So when my bride at the time finished medical school in her residency, I said, it's my turn. I think I'll go to seminary. Wow. And the good folks in Grand Rapids welcomed me into a a very orthodox kind of seminary, Um, being the the world headquarters of Dutch Reformed Christianity, Calvinism, if that name makes any sense to folks, you know. Yeah. it's powerful stuff. Right. <laughs> Heavy duty. Calvin College is in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Heavy duty. And, um, you know, the question in that town was not, do you go to church? It's, where do you go to church? Uh-huh. And I really wanted nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my bride at the time said to me, well, we're about to have our first child. Nice people go to church. Where would you like to go? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, I guess I'll go back to the place that raised me, which was the UCC. Uh-huh. And thus began a journey of working with young people and running into some, um, I would call, highly rabbinically wise Christian ministers, mm-hmm. folks who were really willing to do the work of struggling in modern terms with ancient story and culture and context which really surprised me. That was not the version of Christianity I had really come to know post my childhood. I'd I'd bumped into much more um, orthodox and evangelical versions of Christianity, which have their place in the world. Many of my family are a part of that world, and uh, we honor and respect each other, but it it couldn't work for me. Mm -hmm. Um, These folks turned me on to a lot of studying of the ancient church, first century mystic Jewish Christians who were just barely even beginning to name themselves as something other than Jewish. Right. And that's became my focus um, for the last 20 years, really, um, is helping to provide that voice and to the many voices of um, what I want to name as kind of a pluralist tradition of which I'm helping to evolve. Uh, and I hereby acknowledge that and as a connection that we've had around it. In fact, we had this wonderful discussion about religious language. Mm. Religious language and uh, how using the term God or Savior or Messiah. So what are your thoughts on religious language? Uh, First of all, coming to California, you're in this uh, fairly anti-religious setting, culture here. So this topic of religious language is really an important one. I often have to try to define that I'm not defining something (laughs) when I say it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the work, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Well, I want to tip my hat to a a Sonoma County um, gift named David McCracken, who was the minister of the First Congregational Church in Sonoma Uh and was my mentor for many, many years while I was living in Michigan. and he kind of held my great dream of coming back home, which okay. took me 30 years to do, but here I am. And David said to me one day this thing you're mentioning, which is, you know, don't tell yourself too big a fantasy about life being a pastor in Northern California. He says, don't miss the fact that in Michigan, most people on the street still think going to church is normal. Right, <laughs> <laughs> right. He said, you will be suspect here if you are involved in anything called church. And that's, that's where the hard work is in, in this culture. And that, that's proved to be really true. Um, and so religious language, I think, is deeply involved in that. And 
I guess I would draw a parallel now to what maybe folks who aren't involved in church can really grab onto, which is the great challenge of language and gender, gender identity in the greater culture. We're bumping in against um, the idea that the naming uh, in a binary way of how people identify their gender, he or she, has been our only real two choices for right. millennia. <laughs> yeah. And um, I'm working in a lot of circles where people are saying, oh, we're going to have to fundamentally re-understand the, some of the deepest parts of our language, the use of pronouns. Um, and that is really difficult even for those of us who really are very sensitive and, and want to participate in something that deep. I think religious language is in the same way. We have been raised with, into, with millenniums of use, if not centuries upon centuries of, even like, for example, that word Lord. It really comes out of feudal culture. And it has all of these sort of dynastic European uh, kind of empiric meanings that have done some pretty seriously ugly things in the world. Uh, Absolutely. And people rightly say, really? I, I, I want to be involved with that? And um, part of, I think, the excitement of the work that I get to do at UCC and with folks such as yourself is beginning to peel back the layers of where, where did that stuff come from? What were we really trying to talk about? And almost without fail, when I get folks into a conversation that's open to deconstructing our religious language, asking, you know, what does a word like salvation actually mean? Yeah. You know, really in its deepest roots in Hebrew or even in Greek, it, these are words about healing, wholeness. Right. right. And everybody says, oh, well, I'm all into healing and wholeness and all this. Well, okay, that's, that's a little different. That's the root yeah. of salvation. Yeah. Let's get clear about what we're hanging on the end of these English words. Yeah, when I was uh, much younger, in my early in college, and the, the prayer book that we were using um, kept using the word Redeemer of Israel, right? Uh, uh, referring to the Exodus from Egypt. And the word redemption, is, first of all, to me, uh, in those days, we had green stamps. Yes, I do yeah, remember yeah. green stamps. And you had yeah. to go to a redemption store oh, yeah. to get the gift response. Right. So, okay, that's redemption. God is this act of getting something back for something that you put in. And it's a transaction. <laughs> a transaction. I'm trying to figure out. And then I began to realize that many of the words used in the English translation for the Hebrew text have such had such Christian overtones in the culture, oh, in American yeah. culture, that I lost the connection with those English words because I needed to go, since I'm able to go back to the Hebrew and try to figure out well what does that what does that really mean? Yeah. You know, what does that word mean? Yeah. And yeah. what could it mean? Which is I think the, the beauty of rabbinic tradition right. um, that I think has largely been lost to Christian practice. Yeah. This idea that these ancient stories were not told once so they could stay there and grow moss on them. Uh, yeah, <laughs> of course. They are I there mean, to be imagined into our present living with wise folks who gather together to ask as much as answer questions. Right. My, my friend Jim, who's sitting next to me here doing the boards, and uh, uh, we're involved on Saturday morning in a uh, 
Torah study before services, and we have a couple different translations of the text, English translations of the Hebrew text, yeah. uh, and just just different translators using different words, trying to find ways to encapsulate a meaning to a word that's actually coming from another language, another era of time, and put it into a contemporary culture is really, really a challenge. Uh, I remember when Reverend Patrick Torbett sat here, uh, when he first came to town, I had him on the, uh, 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 no, actually when I first started doing the show, and he came on, and we were talking about truth, the word truth, you know, and what that means. Yeah. What does the word truth mean to you? Oh, you're asking me? Yeah, I'll ask <laughs> you. <laughs> Let me start with, I don't know. Okay. And then we'll move on to yeah, some so possibilities. But it comes up. It comes yeah. up so often. Right, so we're I mean, I had somebody in my office once ask me, so after I explained something to her, well, when are you going to accept the truth? Mm-hmm. And it was, well, yeah. what's, uh, whose truth are you asking about? Right. Yeah. Which begs this question that often I receive as somebody identified on the the far pluralist liberal left of religious practice. Uh-huh. Well, everything to you is just relative. And I have to say, oh, no, we're not practicing relativism, which sort of means there's no truth. Right. But that I would honor there's a distinct difference between the truth of data, what happened, the truth of how we feel about what happened, mm-hmm. and then the judgments we place on top of that, all of which can hold truth. I. I think for me, if, if I want to kind of hold it in a place that feels a little more creative and mysterious, there's a, a native saying that says, I don't know if things happened exactly this way, mm. but I know this story is true. Right. And I think that is the invitation to a parabolic, meaning story-oriented kind of faith exploration. It says, let's wander into this world, which is why in my tradition, the rabbi Jesus told story about common experience which is no different than the rabbis who taught him as a young Jew. Let's wander into this little world and take a seat as one of the characters in this story and see what it can teach us about life then translated into life today. Then I think we can get at some ideas of what true is, which to me, because I have, as you and I have spoken about, I have quite a bit of family connection to Jewish life. Um, It's been quite inspirational to me through my Hebrew studies in Christian seminary. The word that comes up for me is is that which is true is congruent with the Chaim. Mm, right. Yeah. 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 And uh-huh. there's no possible way to define that in purely data-oriented terms. Just like in your last era, you were talking about nobody uses cell phones anymore. Well, <laughs> nobody's riding donkeys to Jerusalem phones, right. anymore. Phones. Right. Yeah. We drive cars now. We don't ride right, donkeys right. so much. Right. Right. And so we have to move our sense of what is true along with the tide of human evolution and consciousness developing. We're part of the good news, especially as, as I was listening to your last segment about how distressing a time this is in our nation and really the world, has to do with some piece of good news, which is it's my sense as I look at the course of history in centuries rather than in years that we really are evolving as humans. And part of that evolution is realizing that we've got some serious problems we haven't solved that weren't even on the radar for us 50 years ago, let alone 500 years ago. And the struggle to, to make those things whole, to have them be congruent with the truth of how connected we are to, say, the planet. 
right. was not a topic for my parents. Right. You know, it was, hey, the world's going to be perfect. We'll have a machine do everything, and it'll just be a long vacation from birth to death. <laughs> well, and the not. fact that we have those contemporary issues in this evolutionary process uh, then asks the question, why, uh, how, therefore, are these ancient ideas relevant in, in, these, in this era of time? Because we got more things to worry about than whether Jesus walked on water, Moses split the Red Sea, any of those things. We have more relevant questions to be answering. Yeah, and, and even I'll add to relevant by adding higher level consciousness questions, mm-hmm. um, which I suppose in some ways is more relevant to our greatest potential, but that. Uh, Ken Wilbur does some really fabulous work. If anybody out there um, wants a guy who will bend your brain around some corners, <laughs> he does a lot of work in in human consciousness development. Uh-huh. And Ken senses that when we see the kind of ugliness and suffering that is happening, just say in our nation or our little corner of the world right now, politically and with our life with immigrants and with the planet and all of these things, this kind of struggling sufferingness is actually quite to be expected as humanity takes its next steps forward. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, and, and that doesn't mean we don't do anything about it. Right. But that it's actually in some ways good news. Oh, if it's getting this much of a reaction, we know we're moving into a higher level of development. As and that's a very optimistic way of looking at it yeah. because it's very easy to look at the world and say it's going down, not up. Yes. You know, it's, it's very easy to look at. It. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I was thinking the true things of people used to ask me, um, well, Moses, the, the Red Sea split, didn't it? I said, I don't know. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah, see, you and I start in the yeah. same place every time. I don't know. Let's have a conversation. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I said, I think something happened. Uh, something happened that impressed the people that their lives were transformed in some way. Um, and that it was passed down from generation to generation, and that's what we're celebrating. I can't tell you if the Red Sea really split or didn't split. Yeah, and you know, it's funny, I just taught on that exact piece of scripture last Sunday. Uh, it's yeah. not in our lectionary, it's just serendipity between okay. this moment and ours. Yeah. And I was fascinated by the sense that in, in part of the Hebrew there, there's this sense that Moses says to them, you will never see this enemy as you have seen it today again. Mm-hmm. Right. That doesn't tell us the facts of whether or not a sea actually split apart and whether or not all of these folks, um, the point was to dominate them and kill everyone, which can be one interpretation of what we ought to be doing right. in response to that story. Or it could be this call to say, oh, in these times where we're having such struggle, the calling here is actually to be present, to wake up, to Shema, to, um, to how will you work to not see your enemy as you have ever seen them again? And that's got to be the higher way I sense we're called to. It's, we can call it optimistic, but my sense is that I don't have a choice. Um, because if the worst is going to happen, it's going to happen. My only positive contribution to that can be to assume that these pieces are helping to inspire me to say, you're right there, you're close, keep moving. All of this resistance, all of this nationalism, all of this fear that is being fomented is what happens when cultures attempt to take a next click upward 
in their evolution. And every, every culture in ex- human existence conveys um, messages of that kind of hope and direction through stories. Oh, through stories. Native American stories. We've, we have myths around the founding of this nation that uh, we don't know whether they were literally true or not, but they were trying to teach us something about this nation, and we still retell that. And every culture does that. And so our collective uh, Christian, Jewish, Judeo-Christian tradition has a collection of stories (coughs) about people, about understandings of God that we retell in order to help us move to that next stage. Well, we hope so. We they hope can also so. be used quite powerfully to keep us not moving. They forward. have been used to keep us <laughs> yeah. right, and that's, that's, our, that's our mutual point here, I think, yeah. is to remind people that we have to use them for the, the, the positive, for the progression toward a, a higher goal in order to, for us to get there. Yeah. So what, what is the UCC church like, uh, nationally? I tell I, I mean, I, I actually know mostly my experience through UCC Petaluma, right? Yeah. So what's the national, is it a large denomination? Is it? I would not call us a large denomination, uh-huh. but we're certainly not a speck on the map. There are about 5,000 churches in the UCC. Okay. Nationwide, and it is a global denomination, so you'll uh-huh. find them in all around in the world, but mostly here in the United States. And it's actually a tradition that came together from the bringing together of four smaller church Protestant traditions in the late 50s. Oh. Um, and so you'll find something called the Christian Church and the Evangelical and Reformed Church um, and the Congregational Church. These four churches came together to create a union, the United uh, Church of Christ, right. um, in an effort in that era to take some small traditions which were not able to be as effective on a larger scale because they were quite small, but by coming together they thought they could be um, more helpful in their task um, in bringing the good of that tradition to the world. Um, The UCC has, over its history, through its connection to um, those traditions, been the first to ordain uh, women. African Americans, LGBTQ folks. So wherever the oppressed are, generally you're going to find the UCC there saying, let's give those folks some power. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's do that through our tradition. And I think if you're going to point to the UCC, that's the thing that is powerfully true from beginning to end, is this desire to lift the marginalized into positions of power. And so here's a question I probably haven't asked you before anyway. Is the, this the church body have a connection to Israel in any way? What's the vision? And because some of the denominations, of course, are into the political pieces and yeah. stuff. And I was wondering what if the UCC had some connection. Um, the UCC does have some connection. Being a congregationalist tradition, that connection is always one of reference um, wisdom provided on a national scale that is always the choice of a local congregation to pick up or not. There is not a large one church that's, say, in an Episcopalian type of tradition where the mother church decides and everyone will toe the line. Uh Um, It's one of the things that makes congregationalism wonderful and maddening is that every church has its own decision-making powers Uh to whether we're going to sign up for that project. There are some very thoughtful folks in the UCC at our national level who are actually employed through the dollars we collect together as individual churches to do work for justice um, for those particularly who suffer oppressions in that part of the world 
So a lot of work in Palestinian territories, a place that I've spent a, a little bit of time and was very moving to me. The relationship with Israel is one of connection, um, not so much politically, but religious, historically, story-wise. Uh-huh. Um, we do not, as some traditions um, imagine, tell a story about how somehow the um, the coming of the Messiah is going to be tied to Israel in this way, which is a very literal kind of thing. We're, we're not really in that business, but there's very much an issue regarding one of the great long-standing sufferings of our world, which is the relationship between Israel and Palestine, and Israel and, and all it, its desire to find suffer, uh, freedom and liberation. Right. Uh, right. So there's a great sense of um, kin with that story, but one that's always aware of how and where is justice being served as mm-hmm. that hope for Israel moves forward. Yeah, well, thank you. What, so you're, you're here in Petaluma. What's, what's it been like for you at the church? And mm. what, uh, what's been your experience? And yeah, this has been my little miracle here. Yeah. It's just, yeah, I mean, I've been wanting to come home for a you, very you long time. you want to miracle? I spent five Sundays doing that last, okay. last month. So John, come on up sometime and we'll talk miracle. Because I'm, I'm one who wants to recover words like miracle. Because uh-huh. um, I don't think of it in supernaturalist terms. But in my experience, which is very much a real expression of my life and great hopes and loves, is that uh, coming to Petaluma has been, a, in the most profound way, a coming home. Um, Petaluma, to me, feels in every way so that I've been able to touch with it so far, much like Ladera, like the peninsula of 40 years ago. Uh-huh. And that, that comes with its own challenges, as I know we're starting to experience here with you know affordability and all these other ways. But it... The people here have been just so extraordinary and welcoming. You not um, short among them and sort of saying, hey, here's a new guy. How do we make sure that he and his family feel welcome here? That's not a small thing. And coming from the Midwest where that's a very powerful part of the culture, the story sometimes we tell from there is, oh, they don't do that in California. Everyone's just open to themselves. I'm not experiencing that. I'm just kind of knocked out by how the church, to me personally and to my family, Folks such as yourselves and others I'm meeting in town are saying, oh, wow, we're, we care about this place. Let's do work together. Um, ran into Elise Hempel recently and doing some work with the Petaluma Day Labor Initiative. You know, immediately just welcomed into helping to do something good for those who are not ourselves. And well, it's, uh, yeah, somebody just said to last, uh, the other night, uh, yeah, in New York, people were so friendly, but in California, we don't know our neighbors. So it's great to have you in the community. I really want to thank you for coming to the studio today, participating in our discussion, and I look forward to much more together. Yeah. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCALP, Petaluma, California. Look forward to seeing you next time.